Hi, and welcome to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. I'm Wendy Conquest, and I'm here with Tim Stein, Jeannie Vitoni, and Dan Drake. We're clinicians and writers from across the country who've created this experience for you because we ourselves are really interested in the latest and most interesting parts of healthy sexuality as well as addiction. Each time we meet, we'll have a guest to join us on a particular topic, which we also want to know more about. I want to tell you a little bit about the four of us. We've been friends and colleagues for anywhere from 10 to 20 years. We've done different projects together, and um, we were just so excited to come together as a group, and we're just so excited to be here with you today. Um, today, our guest is Stacy Sprout, who specializes in women's sex addiction. We're going to bring Stacy on in a minute, but first I want to check in with my friends here. How are you all doing today? Great. Yeah? Great. I'm looking forward to having Stacy on. I feel like us talking about the female sex addict, it's such a, a topic that a lot of folks don't talk about. And so I'm so glad that we're having that conversation and then bringing Stacy in today. Yeah, you know, I think that um, I, I, I wonder a lot about if there's such a thing as a pure female sex addict. Um, there's a lot of talk in the field if a female sex addict is actually a love addict in disguise that uses sex mm -hmm. to try to gain love. I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? You know, the, I don't have a whole lot of experience working with female sex addicts. Most of the work that I've done has been with, with male sex addicts. The few female sex addicts I've seen, I've seen it come from both sides, though. I had uh, one female sex addict I worked with who was just absolutely compulsively sexually acting out, and it didn't seem to come from a, a, a place of I'm attempting to maintain a relationship or that. She was, uh, you know, driving an hour away to act out anonymously with people in her car. Um, and I've also had the, uh, uh, the female sex addicts that it really felt much more like a love addiction and sex was the way to keep the people hooked in and connected. Uh, but I'm, I'm dying to talk to, to Stacy and hear her perspective on this. And uh, uh, I'm sure there's some nuances that I am missing. Uh, and just, I'm really looking forward to, 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 to hearing what other people think about all this. Dan, what do you think? Well, I was, I was just thinking, Wendy, I actually have backing up for a second. I think it's a fantastic question, but what are we, when you're talking about sex addiction versus love addiction, I don't know that everyone's gonna know the distinction. How, how would you define the difference between those? Well, um, it's interesting because when I'm working with um, men sex addicts, um, what I'm finding a lot here in Boulder, Colorado is that um, there's love addiction, uh, that's, that's with the sex addiction. And almost uh, the love addiction a lot of times is more prevalent than the sex addiction when we really get down to it, that they will be pursuing different uh, women if it's a heterosexual relationship um, or heterosexual uh, orientation. And so they'll be pursuing women, uh, but when it gets down to actually having sex, they really don't wanna do that. They're really looking for the adoration, they're looking for a sense of uh, being liked or being loved uh, and not, not really the uh, being sexual, which I'm finding fascinating. I would honestly, something I, you just made me think, I would love to know too when Stacy comes on is the difference, 
how women are sexualized these days post you know internet smartphones how that changes things what pornography looks like you know and how that's affected sex addiction versus sex and love addiction for women you know i know it's affected everybody and and so i'm, I'm actually just curious the, the difference in how women are sexualized and how that might affect your question and i'm also hearing about some uh, female sex addicts who are hooked on porn which in the past was something that was i i, I hadn't heard a whole lot but more that compulsive pornography use. Um, and I wonder how much of that is, uh, is something that I was unaware of in the past and how much of that is, like you were saying, sort of the internet and sort of the, the recent evolutions of technology. That was something I was looking into the other day when I was doing a little research for the interview is the impact of the internet for, for you know, both male and female and how the numbers, this article was proposing that the numbers of female sex addicts, particularly with pornography, was really on the rise. Now, is that because it's being talked about and it's less taboo, right? Or is it happening more often? But certainly the, the invention of internet and coming into our world and coming into our homes and then coming onto our phones has impacted everyone. And so it would make sense that women would be also, you know, increasing numbers with pornography. I'm really interested in uh, talking with Stacy today because she has written a book, uh, Naked in Public, and it is um, uh, about her journey, I believe, in, um, I'll let her speak for herself, but um, her journey in um, what, uh, in identifying her own sex addiction and then her own recovery uh, journey uh, with that. Interested in hearing what that was like for her, and just um, writing the book. You know, I think that was co terrifically courageous to write and then publish and then um, promote. I, I think it's great because so many women, I think, are struggling with this, and they don't know uh, what's. I'm going to say what's wrong with them. They have a feeling that uh, they're being um, um, really bad or sinning, and um, and so I just think that her um, her being so candid is going to help so many people. Let's bring her on. Love it. Let's do it. Stacy, you there? Hi. Yay! <laughs> welcome, Stacy. Hey, Stacy. Hi, Judy. Welcome, Hello, welcome, Tim and Dan. So grateful to be here. So, so let's see. Um, so we've, we've, yeah, we're, we're so curious about, uh, about the book you wrote and you basically uh, declaring your own addiction um, to sex. And we had a little bit of a talk about, is there a difference between sex addiction and love addiction, um, especially with women and does, um, does sex addiction cover for love addiction or is there such a thing as a, a pure uh, sex addict that's a woman? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. You're getting into the heart of what I think many clinicians are curious about and wrestle with. And um, one thing that comes to mind in my training early on is someone wise taught me that, uh, you know, we can look at what the intent is. And I think it is a complicated question and answer because the intent 
in terms of when someone, let's say they come into therapy and they're saying, I'm doing this behavior and it's causing me trouble. Um, what is the behavior? Uh, does it involve specifically, uh, I'm, I'm, I keep looking for sex. I keep looking for cyber sex. I'm looking for hookups. I'm looking for, you know, I'm swiping and constantly and getting myself into situations, you know, so that behavior makes us think of, oh, okay. Are they, are they compulsively acting out sexually? Um, and then another question to look at is, well, why are they doing that? And, you know, what, and if, what is the peak, you know, if we, if we look at the cycle, like we learned with Patrick Carnes of, you know, these are the behaviors leading up to it. And then we go back and these are the fantasies leading up to it. And then this is the, you know, the thing that they do over and over the peak sexual experience that they might get addicted to, uh, or is it a relational experience? What, what is, you know, as we get underneath the behavior, what are the fantasies about? What are the intentions? And so you can actually see the behavior looking kind of similar, but when you drill down into the fantasies and into what the person is seeming to be looking for, they can be very different. And so to me, that's a good way of trying to separate out is the intention kind of the looking for love and using sex to get it, um, is the intention looking for that sexual experience, which sometimes I've heard people uh, talk about looking for power mm -hmm. and, and uh, oftentimes looking for power over or domination. Um, but it may be sexual affirmation. I'm sexy. I'm, I'm, you know, uh, so when I think of another layer of that question though, I think, is, is it possible that there are women out there that aren't really looking for love? They really want just sex. And, and that to me is a more complicated answer. And I would go into my own story because when I wrote my book and I love my book, I'm going to hold it up. <laughs> this was such a labor of love and I'm, I am really proud of it. And I, I, part of the inspiration to write it was because I was actually, and there's a million inspirations, but I had people say, well, women don't recover from this. A, oh. women don't have sex addiction and B, women oh. don't recover from it. You know, they really don't recover. I mean, men can get better, but, mm. and and the stigma and all that. And so I'm like, no, no, women can recover from sex addiction. And so it, the piece of, you know, when I wrote that book, I really was focused on what, what was happening for me. It really was the sexual acting out, the seeking for power. And yet underneath that, there was a profound loss of love. And as our friend Kelly McDaniel and colleague would call it, mother hunger, like the hunger for nurture, the absolute hunger for nurture and structure and someone to be there to care for me and protect me. That was such an unmet need from childhood. So if someone might've looked at just my behaviors, they would say sex addict. She fantasizes about sex. She's compulsive about sexual behavior. She's putting herself in risky situations. Her, what she's saying is she really wants sex and power. Um, but what was also paired with that is what I think of as on the continuum of love addiction, what I now call love restriction. Mm. So I had sexual addiction and love restriction. I had an aversion to intimacy type behaviors, kind tone of voice, someone wanting to be closer, someone who wanted to cuddle with me. All of those things actually evoked contempt because of my wounding. And so to call me a love addict would have seemed really strange the way that I was wired. Um, and yet there was a profound unmet need. And so because of my attachment style, um, 
I was really adverse to love-based behaviors because it actually triggered a deeper fear that I was going to get hurt and that vulnerability that I just could not tolerate. So one layer of my recovery was just safety. Like, what is this woman doing? How can we get her safe? Another layer was starting to look at and even own that it's possible to want love or, you know, attachment bonding type things without appearing weak. Mm. And, you know, so in a way, although in this, in this book, I did write about a relationship and it was that relationship that got me into sexual recovery. So you could say it was, it was a love of, of a man that inspired me to get into recovery first from codependency and then from, from sexual addiction. Um, that relationship didn't last. And because I think we both had some pretty profound intimacy restrictions going on, we found each other and couldn't, couldn't translate, you know, the, the movement into more vulnerability. So I'm, I'm really curious about your thoughts about all this. I know I've kind of laid out a lot of different things with it, but uh, I feel like it all goes together. And yet at times we have to pick it out in layers and kind of work on it in sections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. DC, I just want to say I was so so struck by what you just said. I mean, I have your book, and it's it's already you can see it torn, <laughs> like it's it's dog-eared. To me, that's that's a sign of a book that I've read. You know, it's not really. I'm not very delicate with books. There's like underlined <laughs> stuff. My wife it drives my wife crazy because she likes it all like kind of nice, and I just kind of destroy books. But <laughs> I but I read through it, and I was I was really struck by you know, you just talked about kind of protecting this vulnerability that you had. And yet you write a book called Naked in Public where you're vulnerable and you share your experience. I just was blown away by how courageous you were, how eloquent you were and how you wrote. I just wanna say it was really, really um, personally really touching for me to to be able to read and have you you share your story out there. And I thought it humanized the issue very well. It, It shared your story. And also I think it gave a lot of hope for this. So. I'm just on a personal level, I'm really curious, you know, you, you, you've done obviously a lot of work to be able to put this out there. How was it for you to write this memoir and, and publish it? That must've, that, to, to share this vulnerably to the world was a oh. real big gift. I'm just curious how you did it. Thank you. Thank you so much for what you shared about the book and the dog-eared pages. And it means so much to me because when it was first published, we thought, well, this might help a few women, you know, and even just the idea that men would read it or be interested in it is, is, is just so affirming to the story, you know, because we're all impacted by members of all genders and what they're doing. Um, and so for me, it's funny, I'm like tearing up, <laughs> um, just means a lot to me. Um, it's one thing to have a vision and hope, you know, but writing a book as many, you know, you, you know, is a solitary experience. Even if you're writing with someone else, you have to work on your sections alone. And um, so I, I absolutely hundred percent felt a spiritual call to write that book. I mean, it was about trying to be of service and educate, but it was also about my purpose on the planet. And I didn't really understand that. But one thing I've come to know in, I, use this all the time in my clinical work, maybe especially with women, but men too, people of all genders is why are you here? You know, what is your life purpose? And I actually use a five circle model, which includes life purpose in there as part of sobriety, because I personally tried to get sober for three years from my bottom line, sexual behaviors. And I could not stop, even though I was going to 12 step and going to therapy and trying. And it wasn't until I actually started focusing on my life purpose 
mm-hmm. that I found a reason to work so hard. And it was such hard work to get and stay sober. And it was spiritual work. And I had a lot of aversions to kind of the idea of there being a beneficent force in the world because of my own wounding and bitterness about that. Mm-hmm. And so, but that call kind of spurred me on and I had a car accident and I got a settlement. And so I kind of, I made a plan to go to Hawaii and I was on the beach in Hawaii and I was, I was re- trying to write and um, so much grief came over me that I had to stop for, I don't know, maybe a year or two. And then I fell in love. Mm. So it was in that loving relationship that the, the, that kind of whispering idea of writing the book started to come back. And I started to feel safe enough because I was loved and supported and loving and supporting. And I had that kind of experience of like direct love, spiritual love. I mean, there's indirect love. I'm one with the universe and I love all that. And I needed someone to hold me and someone to hold and to say, this is really hard, but you're going to be okay. And so it wasn't the kind of dependent love that, you know, someone to rescue me. It was actually a beautiful partnership. And in that process, I became kind of safe enough and the strength came through me to be able to write the story. And I would say there's kind of three things to say about it. One is that in writing of the story, it brought up a lot of pain. So I just, I'm one thing I am good at, and I'm really grateful for this is what I call resourcing. And I know that you are too, or you wouldn't be here, you know, in this group of four, like having this inquiries, like you can connect with others. And although I always struggled to connect in a love or sexual relationship, I could connect in networks. And so I surrounded myself with support and 12-step report and support groups. And I joined a writer's group and I I had a lot of support when I was writing it. Um, And so that helped me to be more vulnerable as I wrote the book. And then the next layer was I wrote a book that I never would publish. So there was so much stuff that came out in the writing process that didn't end up appropriate for the final product. And actually most of it was about the the sexual victimization and abuse that had happened to me Uh, because I realized that that is maybe another book someday or another story, but this was a story about a girl who grows up to use her sexuality to have power over others and to get herself in a lot of, of very painful and difficult situations and to somehow kind of miraculously stumble into this world of recovery and to enter into rooms of mostly men and to heal and to finally find good therapy, recognize what trauma was, and then to really start taking off and having a life. And, you know, the middle and second half of the book is all about recovery and the hard journey, but, you know, that's where I want to focus the energy on really. Um, The last piece I'll say is that the editing process Oh my gosh. So, I mean, I, you know, I wrote the book that I wouldn't publish and took out so much stuff. And then there was what was left. And then my editor, who was this beautiful, amazing woman. And so she would send me stuff and she would just circle stuff and she'd say, simplify. (laughs) Because what I do when I don't want to feel my feelings is I make things really complicated. So I had these beautiful, artistic, wordy, you know, and she'd be like, meh. And so I would take out all this stuff and just say something really directly. And then I would just weep because it was the direct telling of the story. It was like, oh, this is so sad that this happened to her, you know, and of course it was me, 
but it's all of us in a way, right? I mean, you, you all could write memoirs about your journeys and you would have things that, you know, people would read and just weep because it's like, that is so sad. And it's so hard to be with that directly. And so that writing process really, because of she kept giving that, it was almost like the, it was like therapy in this really different way. Um, so it was an amazing process. I'm so grateful I got to do it. And I felt just really held up by so many people around me during the whole process. You know, when you, when you talk about that whole process, Stacey, what I hear, I put it in terms of recovery for myself. And, and I hear, you know, intimacy with yourself and intimacy with others, but I also hear trust. Like I, I know in my own story, there have been so many th- times that I would just try to make things happen the way that I wanted to. You know, my addict brain would say, this is the way it's supposed to be and I'm just gonna force it to be that way. And it never worked out well. Um, and, you know, I look later on at many of the things that, that I've done myself or with other people, this podcast being one of them, where it wasn't my vision. It wasn't something that I, I thought this is something that I need to do but it was more trusting that, hey, I'm being called for this for some reason, that, that there's, a, there's a, uh, a path being opened up in front of me and I don't know where it's gonna take me and what it's gonna look like, but I'm just trusting that it's taking me where I'm supposed to be and, and what I'm supposed to offer to the world around me. Um, and those things have always paid dividends for me personally, but also to my soul. And when I hear you talk about the, the, the evolution and the writing and the development of your book, I, I hear uh, a trust and I hear a, a allowing something else to guide you in what you were supposed to put out there to the, to the world around you. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm with about your book and letting it be known, this story be known in such a vulnerable way again, sort of shines the light of opportunity for others who might be searching and breaking through that shame and reading the book and saying, me too. And, and so then I think about how, who comes actually into our rooms and we don't have a lot of female sex addicts or sex and love addicts who come into our rooms. And I'm kind of wondering, sort of in a larger philosophical way, you know, what is the clinical world not paying attention to or what could we do better to bring more awareness or to bring those clients in to offer more services. I'm kind of like that advocacy piece, you know, how can we do a better job of that to serve these ladies? Any suggestions on that? Well, if I could only give one answer, it would be to invite them into the question of of intimacy. And it sort of contradicts what I said earlier about myself, where I was, I saw, you know, vulnerability as a weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a time when women just won't come in. They just won't come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or they'll come one time and they won't come back. And I see that a lot. And when I work with clinicians and consult, they say, well, what am I doing wrong? Mm-hmm. And it's not, necessarily time for them to come in or come in all the way or come in long-term yet. Um, So we have to remember that we can plant seeds. And I think that we're all doing that. We're doing that today. I'm sure you do it in your practice. And, and so, but I started trying to work with women in 2006 as a specialist. 
And all the clinicians in my local area said, oh, good. Let's refer all our women to Stacy because <laughs> we don't know what to do with them. And they are, they, we, you know, it, it's a tough population. These are tough cookies. They have survived. And one of my colleagues said this beautiful thing about, you know, that, that I really related to is the thing inside me is so much worse than anything you could do to me. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to risk it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that knowing that, that they may come and go and that we are holding a container and in kind of trying to invite over time, the world to be waking up to what's really happened for women. Um, I, I just think we're a little ahead of the curve here in a way. Now, I personally, I mean, I did start getting consultation calls from clinicians after they read my book who said, what do I do with women? And so I started a consultation group and then I was saying the same things over and over about what I do. And I realized, you know what, I should create a training. And so I did create an, an online training program called Shadows of the Heart. Um, okay. And I, I put everything in there that I could and it's anyone can sign up it's for helping professionals and you know it's on my website and so I do have some things I feel are best practices that really look at this model of empowerment um, visions and life purpose to try to bring the positivity and decrease the shame right off the bat Mm -hmm. really take a deeper look at the the container of connection and empathy and how even sharing some of our own story is so disarming to this population. And it's so scary as clinicians, can I really share some of my shame? And yet sometimes that's the only way to break through. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at how women can work with uh, their, their rage, their eroticized rage, mm-hmm. the resentment, which can be so scary to invite into the room, of course, looking at fears and shame. So I think there are some clinical things I have found to be different about this population that, that I'm trying to support but not everyone will take my classes and, you know, people have other great things to offer. And so that piece, I started interviewing like everyone I talked to, cause I was trying to get them all into groups and none of them wanted to get into groups um, because other women can be so scary for female sex addicts and even female love addicts. There's so much betrayal that has happened for them. And so they didn't want to go into groups. And so I said, well, what, what's the one thing you would really want to join a group for? And that was the word was intimacy. Like they wanted to feel closer with people, even, even the ones who might've said, no, I don't. Eventually they get to the place where they start to recognize their loneliness and, or they fall for someone unexpectedly and it changes them. Or, so I think that that, you know, I, I coach people to re- revise your website, like really, you know, just talk about reaching out to women for intimacy, relationships, sexuality issues, you know, and, and being prepared to look at the issue of pornography as well because mm-hmm. we're seeing that so much more in the younger women population. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking of, oh, we're going to redo our website and here's some more ideas of ways to do that to equally represent both genders in the addiction population and changing the wording so that it matches more of their experience because I'm sure our language is more towards men, male addicts. So Well, yeah, and, and that's, I mean, we've all done it, mine too. You know, I mean, on my website, I was saying, am I a sex addict? There's nothing in there about intimacy or relationship addiction or anything. And yeah. it's like, oh, I, I need to get in there and, you know, keep working with that. And, mm. and also, you know, putting up pictures of women's faces that are happy, yeah. <laughs> like, instead of like, do you want treatment for sex addiction? 
you know, there's the picture is like, ah. it's like, no, we want to see the vision of where we're going toward, you know, that's a really good point, Stacy. I hadn't really thought of that, but I think a lot of, when I, when I reflect on it, a lot of websites have women with downcast faces, you know, their hands are covering their eyes. I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty typical picture that, that you see. I'm thinking of my website. I probably have a bunch of those up there too. I yeah. hear you. It's, it's just part of the process of realizing the, the importance of the visions and who, who we want to be versus maybe where we are. So we think, well, this is where we are. So I want to want them to resonate. But, but just um, what I found is that the, the women, by the time they're reaching out, they're, re they're reaching out for something different than where they, where they are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Stacy, this, um, you called it love restriction and you referred to attachment style. And I don't know if the people that are listening um, actually understand about attachment style in this piece, how love restriction can uh, occur. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So in some of the research on attachment, so what is attachment? Like, how do I lean toward you in some way? I call you, I reach out, I want to talk, I, I pursue you to connect. How do I, how do I back up? You know, how do I move further away in my class? So I teach a class called intimacy boot camps. So I took my own advice. I focused on intimacy and I boiled everything down to eight weeks of what women need to know. And Great. I made it into a class because it's a little less threatening than a therapy group. And so in the class, I talk about everybody needs certain skills just to get by in the world. And you need to know how to level up a relationship and you need to know how to level down a relationship. And you need to be intentional about that. So you can create your intentional community around you and you need to distance from people who are not safe. So it's all based on polyvagal and safety. And so what I found coming into my recovery is looking back at myself, I didn't know how to level up or level down. I wasn't conscious about any of it. I was just acting out my childhood <laughs> and the attachments that I had with my mom were so painful because and I love my mom and, and, you know, this is the qualification that maybe I, the, my child guilt has to put in there, but the truth is she is an amazing woman. She did pass this last year, but, yeah, but, and, um, she was incredibly wounded and she hurt me profoundly. And so as a child, I had this absolute, you know, conflicted bond with her where I wanted to attach, but I kept getting uh, abused. And so eventually the abuse was so damaging to me that I stopped trying to attach. And that's what we call a, an avoidant, primarily avoidant type attachment, right? You, you primarily avoid, which is really a feat for a child because we are wired to connect, but it was just that bad. And so the, there's the attachment style where you try to connect and then it's not always good, but you try again and it's kind of the anxious and you keep trying. And, and then there's the one where you just quit trying. And I, I connect that to the polyvagal, kind of the fight or flight, you're going back and forth. You have a mobilized attachment style or you have an immobile attachment style. You, you, are, you are frozen, you do not try. And that's where I think we see some of the more classic sex addiction is the immobilized attachment. They're frozen around that, but at least they gotta have that, you know, that kind of brainstem kind of drive for something and that's connection for them. So, um, what I mean by restriction. So I came to that terminology and I hadn't heard it before, but it's really important to my work is that there's something inside us that gets rewired based on the wounds. And then we, we pick it up ourselves. 
So for me, I had a restriction around closeness. I would shrink back. There was a, there was some way that I, so you call it avoidant attachment style, but I developed this compulsive restriction so that someone would come into my orbit and be like loving and present, want to be my friend. And I'd be like, you know, get away. Like it's too dangerous. It's going to melt my iceberg. It's going to unthaw me. And I'm going to just flood, right? There's the flooding. There's the overwhelming emotion that I cannot afford to have unfrozen. So I have to be really careful who I let close and I'll just do it in this controlled and maybe just focus on the sexual way. So I feel like I've lost the thread of your question because I've been talking, but can you remind me where I'm supposed to be? <laughs> oh, no, I, everything you're saying is, is just perfect. Um, so let me just reflect that. Um, so um, with every addict that I've ever worked with, um, there has been a time in their lives where, uh, and it could be, I found, I'm just curious. So I found it could be in utero, it could be at birth, or any time after that, um, usually childhood, but adolescence, where they are uh, betrayed emotionally in some way by a caretaker. And it could be a one-time event, it could be a repeated event, but at that moment they say, that's it, I don't need you, uh, I, I, I'll do it on my own, that's it. And I believe in that moment is where then the addiction comes in because mm -hmm. they then to get connection, it's this desire for a uh, connection, but from something other than a, uh, than a, a true intimate relationship. You know, and in, in my experience, and I think it's always interesting because I love what you're saying, Wendy, about that attachment rupture and that sort of being the, the, the starting point for where the addictive process begins. But I've, I've also found that one, oftentimes the parents, it's not their intention whatsoever and they're just doing the best job they can. They're just so, so wounded. Um, and then two, that as addicts, addicts are often in denial about that. I, I, I have so many clients that walk in and it's like, well, tell me, tell me about your family growing up. And they say, my family was fabulous. And you know, I'm jaded these days. So I think, oh, a fantasy to shatter, got it. But I also remember being that person who said my family was fabulous and my family did the best they could and they, they loved me but I also see the emotional wounding that I carried out of that. So there, there, there is this intimacy piece, but I also think it's really important to recognize it's not intentional and we may not be aware of it, even though it might very much be present. I, I totally hear you, Tim. That's um, as soon as I asked, so what was your family like? The, the classic answer is we were great. Everything was fine. I, there were no problems with my childhood. And uh, I'm the same. It's like, well, give me 10 minutes. So let me scratch the surface a little bit. <laughs> and, um, and then let's see what we've got. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is totally different subject. But I was when I was reading your book, and, you know, you're going into recovery. And at the time, you know, you're entering into the men's recovery meetings, and how that must have been very awkward at times for you as a woman, and also maybe for the men in the room. And so I wondered if there were conversations that you had. And I also, because I work with addicts and partners, for partners to hear that there's a woman in the room sometimes really activates their fear and worries. Did any of that kind of conversation come up where you had to work that out with some people or uh, decrease fears or you know, kind of work out that, making sure everyone feels comfortable? Did you ever have yes. that experience? Yes. 
I'm glad you asked that Jeannie, because that was absolutely a part of my early recovery. I was an unsafe fellow in, in 12 step. So mm -hmm. the partners were very wise to be concerned about me or a woman who is coming in newly into recovery for sex addiction um, or love addiction. Not all women are, are going to betray, um, but I was at great risk for that. That in fact was my compulsion. So you can see <laughs> where it's just a recipe for, for um, challenge. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow it's amazing that it could work at all. Uh, mm -hmm. I had men say, uh, when I called them for support, I'm not able to take support calls from you to, in order to honor my wife. And of course, at the time I felt bruised and rejected and, but you know what, what I came to learn is that that's a, that's a strong man who has a strong marriage and he's taking care of himself and good for him. And, you know, I've learned to, to never be offended by people's healthy boundaries so I think it's really good for partners and, and, you know, female partners and their male husbands to talk about, is the room safe? Do they need to go to a men's only meeting? Mm -hmm. um, do they need to go to maybe a recovery event where they can meet this woman and the, the partner can see how she feels around her? You know, there came a time in my recovery where I had learned about the value of honesty, integrity, and the, you know, to never betray. And it happened after I did my ninth step. And I remember I actually did a public ninth step. Well, it was at a public recovery meeting and I read it aloud. I wrote about that in my book of apology to the partners that I had hurt. And after that point, I think it would have been impossible for me to cheat again. I had a spiritual experience and I just, you know, once you put your hand on the hot stove and you see how much it burns you or me, I could see how much pain I was in from the material I had caused, let alone what I'd caused others. I never wanted to feel that pain again. I never want to inflict that on anyone else. And then later, as I wrote in the book, I was cheated on massively and I got that experience of empathy. And so that was yet another layer of, of recovery. It's just like, wow, can't do that stuff and be well. And mm -hmm. so it is, it is a good thing to be aware of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did you ever have conversations with some of the other fellows in the recovery of both of you establishing boundaries uh, with each other so that you both could be in the meetings and feel comfortable. Because what I ended up doing was starting a meeting ah. uh, with a gay man. And that way, everyone who didn't feel comfortable with a woman around didn't come to my new meeting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who didn't mind or weren't triggered by women particularly, or, or you know, happened to get to know me, they would come to our meeting. So it was a small meeting but it was very safe, I think, for all of us. And that helped a lot for the first year where I was really getting more safe. And then after that, you know, I kind of crossed a threshold where, I mean, I, I, I just was more safe. And then it, it didn't really come up as much. It's almost like people have a, a sense of, oh, okay, you know, we, we know her. I'd go to retreats. And so then it got easier. But yeah, new women coming in, it's, it's worth being cautious and careful for sure. Thank you. Thank you. This is a, a little bit of a different departure too, Stacey, but I know um, I hear this all the time when I do uh, supervision groups, you know, everyone asks for uh, resources for male betrayed partners um, in heterosexual relationships with, with women. And I, I know you've, you've got resources for men, but I don't see too many resources out there for, for male betrayed partners. So, uh, you know, on the other end of, of the, the, the women as a sex addict, do you, what would you say for the men that might be 
listening or struggling with betrayal, what resources or suggestions or help would you have for them? Well, I do have a website where I created to try to collate resources because there was, I got that question so many times because if specializing with female sex addicts, of course I'd meet their husbands and they know where to go. And so it's called male partners of female sex addicts.com. And I deliberately put that all in the title because I was trying to just state like there are men who are partnered with female sex addicts. I didn't want to put sex and love addicts. That was too long anyway, but it's like, this is real. It's happening. The betrayal is devastating. And what's very sad to me is that when I created that website, there were so much more resources in the world for cuckolding, like in kind of the fetish of men who enjoy being cheated on. And there was nothing for the men who didn't enjoy that or even the permission that you don't have to enjoy that. And you can still be a very strong man. Um, so that's been a wonderful journey of working with men and who have contacted me through that site and said, you know, can I get on a, a phone list? Can I connect with other men? I don't offer a group through that site. I don't have that to, to give, but I'm hoping that the men who will connect through the site will continue to resource and eventually create their own group. Um, so I can, if you have links to this talk, I can give you a link to that site. You can click on it. But what I will say is it has been one of the most rewarding parts of, of this journey is I, I literally got a letter from a man recently who has, he's been married for many, 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 many years. <laughs> um, a very wise elder who had a recent realization about his, his wife's sex addiction and no idea. And, you know, so you just, it's so profound what's happening to men and the secrecy and the shame. And, you know, we're, we're adding, they're adding more training through ITAP on this. And it's just, I would say to those men, you're just so cutting edge mm-hmm. and it's okay to feel devastated. And you, you are still a strong, amazing man. And, and her cheating is her injury and she's trying to inflict that on you. And it, it's going to hurt. You don't have to take on that shame. You didn't cause that. You can't control that. You can't even cure that, you know, as we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more you do on your recovery, the better it helps everyone, whether you stay with her or not. And, but just really affirming their strength and, and that they don't have to feel shame. Can you repeat that website really slowly for me? Oh, sure. It's male partners of female sex and we'll Thank have a link you. to that so people can can find it because I, I you're the re, you're the resource I send people to because I don't know really much else out there for for men. I don't think there is anything designated. There will be. Mark our words, right? Yeah. Right now, it's just in its infancy because and there's um, a very wonderful and brave man named Andy Johns who had gone through the Appsats you know partner program as a male and really blazed the trail through there and were like, you need to change your gender on all your paperwork and really woke up, you know, a lot of people there. And he contacted me, someone put him in touch with me and he helped me with the website and with a survey. So we actually have a survey and um, we're just starting to get enough answers to give kind of responses. And I just talked with Stephanie Carnes about that the other day as part of an interview, just trying to raise awareness. And I, I wrote an article, which I haven't published yet, but I need to get it out there. I do in part of my ethics class and treating female sex and love addiction, 
Um, I speak with Mari Lee, who really I think is a field expert in, in this area. And she talked a lot about what it's like to work with male partners. And so that's a part of that five hour ethics class. If anyone's interested in more depth on this topic, you can at least go there. Thank you. Can you talk about, so I saw on your website is the She Virtuals Recovery Summit. Yes. So the the, the She Summit, She Recovery Summit took place in October of 2020, absolutely first of its kind. Um, so Crystal Renault Day is, uh, she's a minister, a coach, educator, counselor, and she wrote a book called Dirty Girls Come Clean, which was really the first book I ever saw about women in pornography. And it's a compilation of stories. So reading about other women and how they struggle, and it is within the Christian faith. So they have certain um, kind of spiritual value struggles that people outside that faith don't necessarily have the same struggles with. Um, and it was written in a time where pornography was less widely accepted as it is now, but it's still a fantastic book. And I think everyone should read it. And so Crystal came up, she partnered up with Covenant Eyes and they made a summit. So it's a series of interviews with experts from around the world, um, people in recovery, people who are coaches, people who are therapists, I was honored to be interviewed for it, uh, talking about intimacy <laughs> and women, and but it really focuses on pornography and overcoming um, addiction to pornography. And there's, yeah, so it's 49 bucks. Anybody can go on, purchase it. You can take, you know, watch the interviews you want, not the rest. And she's creating a whole community. She offers women's groups. It's, it's really one of the best resources on the planet for women, especially dealing with overcoming pornography and um, and, and Christian women will especially find a home there, but it's, it's not, in, it's not exclusive. It's open to anyone who can benefit. When That's I an excellent resource. Thought, I, yeah. When I first saw it, I thought it would be like a, an annual conference or something like that, but that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing this was um, a one-time piece with pulling all these experts together to talk on this particular subject is, am I Yes, it may be an annual event. I, I, I think there was some intention to do some more things in this April, um, and maybe there'll be something again in the fall. I'm not sure about that, but definitely go to the site and I can give you the link to, to put up so that people can check out that resource. I'm sure it will expand over time. Great. Okay. So I think we're maybe about at time. Does, does the group have any other last questions or comments for Stacy? I think the the thing I just want to wrap up with Stacy is, is one. It's such a pleasure to to, to talk with you, and two, um, I'm just struck by uh, your grace and your vulnerability, and how um, I just think uh, I can just imagine being in a therapy session room with you, with your grace and your vulnerability and appropriate boundaries, and how safe that must make that uh, make your clients feel, and how much you bring to the field. So I'm just. Uh, I'm just grateful. So much of what you talk about resonates with me. Uh, and I always just assume that I am a, a mirror of other people. So I make up that it just, <clears throat> excuse me, that it resonates with other people as well. So thank you so much for just, not just this interview, but everything that you bring to this field. Mm -hmm. Thank I you. Would, uh, that dedication over time, because this is, this is not going to be a flash in the pan. This, this is some, a movement of bringing this population to the forefront and so thank you for being one of the people to start that process and then the dedication to keep up the efforts and spreading the word. So it was so lovely to meet you today, Stacy. 
Thank you, Jeannie. Thank you, Tim and Dan and Wendy. I am so honored to be here and part of the conversation adding what I have to add. And I want to honor the people who came before me, people who helped to train me and teach me and inspire me and all those who are coming, you know, now and going through trainings and are going to just teach us so much. And so it is a movement. I love that you called it that. I call it that too, a movement of women stepping into their own vulnerability and, and the grace that comes just through recovery is what I think of. Um, so authenticity. And um, so thanks for this lovely time to talk with you. And if you ever want to talk more, maybe about pornography or something else, I'd love to have come back someday. Sounds great. <laughs> Stacy. Bye, Stacy. Thank you. Bye. I so enjoyed having Stacy with us today. And I'm wondering what you all thought about the presentation and any things that struck you particularly that we want to talk about. Something that really, really struck out, stuck with me and stuck out was, I, I was just really amazed at how she talked about vulnerability, her narrative that vulnerability was a weakness. And my experience of her was, wow, I mean, her vulnerability was such a strength. She had such a way of sharing herself with us sharing you know her wisdom of expressing that i think it's such a gift for our community and that was what struck me more than anything i think the the, the piece that, that that i'm walking away with was um we have often talked about sex addiction as being an intimacy disorder but when when she was talking about intimacy and the, and the fear of intimacy and the way that it shows up and love addiction and sex addiction as being ways of coping with that fear of intimacy, it really sort of crystallized that for me and, and made sense. And I just think that's such an important piece to, to hold on to that idea that sex addiction and love addiction are really at their core intimacy disorders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have never met Stacy in person. And so being able to put all the words and all the conversations I've heard, you know, into the face and she has such a, um, a gentle loving presence. I really appreciated that. Um, one thing I came away with was so many resources. She has so many resources. She's been such an advocate from the male partner website to the intimacy boot camps to being part of the she virtual uh, conference. I'm just, she's just a wealth of resources. So I'm really curious to go to her website and look at all of those and, and have better referrals for our clients too. What was your takeaway, Wendy? Thing I didn't mention is she's in Seattle, uh, Washington. So I mentioned our locations, uh, I believe, but well, maybe I didn't. Um, so just for the audience, uh, Dan's in uh, Los Angeles and Tim and Jeannie are in Santa Rosa, California. And, um, and then Stacy is in Seattle. So, uh, so my takeaways, uh, she's, uh, I think she's just a powerhouse um, and this whole piece that it's spiritually driven really impacts me a lot. It, it, the absence of ego, I think, was so prevalent in everything that she was saying. Um, and so as she was talking, I could relate to so much of what she was saying. Um, I, I, and also I have a number of clients um, who are uh, addicts, uh, women addicts, and um, the struggle of trying to have them come together in a group. Um, and I, I did a group with the female sex addicts 
a number of times. And the very first thing I say is, hey, we're all women here. How scary is that? Because uh, women addicts don't really, they don't trust other women. And so it's this conundrum, I think, of how, how, how I'm going to say dangerous it can be for a woman addict to be seeing a male therapist, um, because I think the tendency to want to seduce is there, um, and not not and this, the fear of being vulnerable with both men and women. So uh, then, if they're with a woman therapist, that's just as scary. So I think that needs to be named. Um, but Stacy was just I, I was really I just thoroughly enjoyed talking to her and learning, learning a lot from her. You know, one thing that also came to me when she, when she talked about, I think she said she does five circles. So I was curious what the fourth was because she said the fifth was purpose and being able to find what's your purpose for getting sober? What's your purpose that is beyond yourself perhaps? And I was thinking, you know, that might be really helpful exploration for some folks who are having a hard time getting really good traction with their sobriety is that maybe they need to look sort of outside of that, um, out of the urge piece and look bigger. And what's my purpose? Where do I wanna be in five years? And how do I get there as a sober person? And so I, that kind of like really kind of tickled my brain of, oh, I wanna start bringing that kind of conversation in, especially for the folks who struggle a bit maybe. Especially with those, you know, that that have experienced profound trauma, finding that sense of meaning and purpose and value and you know vision for yourself. Who am I? Who do I want to be? That that can get shattered. So that that struck me too. That was a really yeah. good point. Yeah. I think another conversation would be about shame. Um, so we uh, we as a collective uh, community, as a therapist in general, I think throw that word around a lot. Um, oh, that's shame. Uh, oh, you know, they're, they're in their shame. But um, it's a complicated dynamic. And I, I would love to talk more about that. Mm -hmm. well, I'm looking forward to us having more interviewees and more guests and more conversations. And I so enjoy being with you guys. So I know it's going to be a good time as well as some good conversation and, and resources and information for the public. Absolutely. Yeah, it should be fun. We're finding our groove and we'll see where this takes us, you know, in the in the coming coming episodes. Stay tuned for excitement. <laughs> so glad that you joined us today. So please rate us or like us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you're listening to us so that other people can find us and uh, we can keep sharing the message of what we're talking about here with other people and they can join our conversation.